Good morning. So good to see all of you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm part of our preaching team. And uh, I want to let you know before we dive into the scriptures today, this is uh, the last day that you can give to the Turkey Relief Fund. As you know, there has been a series of earthquakes in Turkey. Uh, you may not know that Turkey is the primary overseas missions focus for us as a church. And uh, it's a country of 80 plus million people and about 8,000 Christians. So there's lots of times that we're going, how can the church of Jesus Christ make more of an impact in this place where Jesus is so not known by people? And uh, one of the things that God uses often to uh, help the witness of Christ is the response of Jesus' people in the midst of trouble. And so the Christians there that we're partnered with have asked us, hey, would you consider helping us with this project? So essentially what we're giving to is this Turkey Relief Fund. You can uh, find the URL to that. You can give it to it on our website, and then we're going to give one big gift to them. What that's going to do is really uh, two primary things. It's going to help us buy some tiny homes for the, I mean, there's, there's over a million people displaced from their homes. It's crazy. The, the earthquake area is like the size of Florida. It's huge. So, so we're going to just do a little dent as much as we can, but uh, for not very much money, we can actually get these tiny homes built and uh, allow people to have a place to live. Uh, we're also uh, helping with them. They're, they're creating these different mobile bathroom units with toilets and showers and that sort of thing. So uh, again, we're, we're trying to collect as much as we can and get it to them. And so this isn't going to drag on forever. So if you'd like to be part of it, if you'd like to give to it, please do so today. And uh, we're eager for how the Lord will bless and will use that. So pray with me actually for, for our friends there. Uh, Lord, um, we pray that in the midst of a lot of pain and difficulty and trouble uh, for our uh, brothers and sisters in Turkey, God, that you would use um, this opportunity to allow them to uh, do good works, to bless in a way that would uh, make people see their good works and give glory to you, the one true God. God, we pray you'd use this to open doors for the gospel, and we pray that you would multiply our generosity. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, this past weekend, I was in Las Vegas, which is where you expect your pastor to be when he's not here. Um, but I was here, I was there for a, a volleyball tournament, a huge volleyball tournament. My 14-year-old plays club volleyball and uh, volleyball courts as far as the eye can see, and we were there. And I had an experience as I stayed in the hotel that I have at every hotel I stay at which is I just don't sleep as well as I think I should, right? I mean, you go to a hotel, you're like, oh, this is going to be it. It's going to be a comfortable bed. It's going to be quiet. I don't have children that are going to wake me up, uh, right? Whatever. And, and yet you, you get there and you go like, man, I just don't sleep well. And like, for me, it's like, I'm actually used to my, my mattress and my pillow and my like settings and everything just, at least the first night, it's just, it just off. It just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel like home. And feel like home. You know, we often say there's, there's no place like home. Well, why do we say that? Well, it was in a famous movie, but why else do we say it? Uh, it's because there's just no place like home. I think about it physically, right? You have your you, everything's set and dialed in the way you like it, right? The, whether it's the mattress and the pillow, or like for me, there's, there's this spot on the couch. I mean, other people sit there, but they're sitting in my spot, <laughs> right? The, the physical reality of being home is when you're physically at home, you can walk around in the dark and still turn on all the light switches, you can still walk around in the dark and not bang into stuff. You know where you are. You wake up in a hotel room and you like 
you know, like a, you're like a human pinball machine as you ricochet into walls and things, right? So there's a physical aspect of, of being home. There's also just a, a personal aspect. It just feels right. right. When you feel at home, you can, you can just take a deep breath. This feels right. This feels good. You know, when you feel home relationally, you're known and you're understood. You don't feel like you have to be on, right? There's a lot of environments now where it just feels like you got to be on. All right. Are we, do I have to be on or can I just be me? Do I have to perform or can I just kind of relax? When you're, when you're at home, you don't have to be on. When you're at home relationally, you just, you're with people. They know you and they love you and they see your mistakes and they're gracious. You fully belong. Sometimes you get in a fight. You work through it because you're okay because we're at home. Do you know what home feels like? Can you connect with this experience of home? And yet, here's what I know. Some of you, you've never really had a home like that. For lots of different reasons. You just never had an environment that was like, yeah, this, this feels like the, what you're describing. Some of you might say, no, I don't really know that. Some of you, you say, well, I used to know that. And then I moved to Arizona. I was listening once to an interview with a, a, a GM at the time of the Phoenix Suns. He was saying that one of the challenges with being a sports franchise in Arizona is that at that point, it was like 73% of the Phoenix market was not from here, which meant the Suns are everyone's second favorite team. And he's going, how do, you, how do you handle that, right? So a lot of you, you know that experience. Like I was home and I had the places where I was known and I had the people that I understood and I had the little local spots I like to go to and now I don't have that anymore and I don't feel the same anymore. Some of you, you had at one point a, a taste of home and things were really good and things were really sweet, but then something shattered it. It was shattered by sin. It was shattered by mistakes. It was shattered by selfishness. Maybe yours, maybe someone else's. A lot of us have these tastes of home, but that's all they are is they're just tastes. And the opposite of home is exile. And exile has been a theme that has kept coming up in this book as we've studied Isaiah 40 to 55. If you're just joining us, we've been studying for the last month or so, Isaiah 40 through 55. It's this one poem that's written to the people of Israel who are in exile in Babylon. They're away from their home. The Babylonians had invaded, had carried them off to Babylon. Uh, they're living there, uh, but it's, it's not their home. And so exile is this thing we've, we've hinted at and talked about a little bit as we've gone through it, but I, I want to reflect today in light of this passage, and today we're looking at chapter 50 and 51, uh, I want to reflect on what is this reality of exile, right? We know what it's like to be at home, and I actually think we know what it's like to be in exile, it's just we don't usually describe it that way. See, in exile, you, you feel disoriented. You feel unknown. Everything feels unfamiliar. You feel unsure. You feel alienated. In exile, you're off balance. You're self-doubting, right? In exile, at least in the case of the people of Israel, part of the reason they're there is their own fault, right? And, and when you feel alienated and when you feel unsure and you know you've contributed in some way, you start going like, well, I, I feel off, but, but, but I don't think it's all their fault. I think maybe I'm part of it also. Like, well, but what's going on? What's my part? What's their part? Why, why does it feel so confusing? That's exile. In exile, you're unsettled, you're anxious, you're distressed, and you're tempted to despair. You know what home feels like. Do you know what exile feels like? Whew. 
Israel's in exile in Babylon. Exile is actually an interesting just picture for humanity, right? We were created as human beings in the Garden of Eden in a home. And when Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit, they believed the lies about God rather than embracing the truth about God. And they took that fruit and they ate it. And the consequence of it, one of the things was they were sent into exile. They were sent from the garden. And so exile is this big theme that keeps coming up in the scripture. It's this big experience that all of us have, this feeling unsettled, feeling like we're not quite at home. And now Israel is here in exile as well. I actually think exile is a wonderful picture of the church in our current broken world. You could argue that perhaps there was a time over the last however many hundreds of years that the church felt more at home, right? This was this era of Christendom, right? Where it just felt normal for people to be and for societies to be shaped and influenced by Christianity. We're not there anymore. And some people grasp to try to get it back. But, but the reason we're so disoriented, the reason Christians feel so rattled, the reasons why we're so easily kind of afraid and on edge, I think at least in part as, as followers of Jesus, is because we're not at home. We're in exile. This is actually a better picture of our reality. We're Israel in exile. We're on edge. It's distressing. It's disorienting. It's confusing. It's alienated. It's like, this isn't, this isn't the way I think things should be. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> You're right. Because we're in exile. Exile is a good picture for life in a broken and sinful world. But here's the challenge with exile. Is the longer you're in it, the more exile tempts you to disbelieve that God is good. The more exile tempts you and deceives you into thinking things about God and into thinking things about yourself and into thinking things about reality that just aren't true. And so if we're in exile, like these people are in exile, then we need to form some way to attack back, to fight back against the deceit that exile is giving us. And actually you see this happening over and over in this section of Isaiah. This is what we're going to look at today is that there's a series of, there's a series of deceits. There's a series of lies. There's a series of temptations that Israel keeps bringing up and God keeps having to go, no, no, no. You see it this way? No, here's the truth. And so how do you keep trusting God in exile? You have to drown out the deceits of exile with the decisive declarations of God. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to contrast these deceits of exile with the declarations of God. That's what we're going to do. So if you have your Bible, make sure you open it. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 50 and chapter 51 uh, let me pray and we'll look at the first of these three deceits. Father, uh, we invite you now to come by your spirit and to give us a taste of home, to give us a taste of heaven meeting earth. Lord, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, that's actually a prayer for home. So God, we pray that you would give us a taste of home, that you would give us clarity and vision to think rightly to not be deceived by the painful experience of exile, but to be grounded and rooted by the declarations of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So when you're in exile, the first deceit that you face is this. You think, God turned his back on me, and now it's too late. 
when exile wears on and you feel disoriented and you feel confused and you feel guilty and you feel messed up and you feel like things aren't going great, what inevitably is gonna come into your mind is this thought, well, maybe God turned his back on me and maybe it's too late. Maybe God has let me go. Maybe God's abandoned me. Maybe God has sent me away. Maybe God doesn't want anything to do with me and there's nothing I can do about it. And here's what I wanna tell you today, that's a lie. That's a lie. Now, that's a lie that the people of Israel have been saying along the way. Look at what they said back in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? This is what they're saying. God, you don't get me. God, you don't see me. God, you're not for me. Isaiah 49, 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Are you in exile? You're in exile because of your own sin. You're in exile because of the sin around you. You're confused. You're disoriented. You're off balance. You stay there for very long. You're discouraged. You're weary. You're weak. You start to go, God, are you there? God, do you care? God, are you for me? And in the midst of that deceit, God's first declaration comes into play. And he, it's this, your sin got you here, but God's hand is not too short to redeem you. Your sin got you here, but God's hand is not too short to redeem you, right? What, what, got, the, what got Adam and Eve exile into the garden or out of the garden was their sin. What got Israel exile into Babylon was their sin. What leaves us feeling like we're in exile so often is our sin. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, hey, your sin got you here, but this isn't the end. I'm not turning my back. My hand's not too short to save. Look at chapter 50. Verse one and two, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? The, the complaint that's, that God's answering here is this idea that, well, God, you just sent us away. God, you just did, got rid of us. God, you just didn't want anything to do with us anymore. God, you just divorced us. God, you just sold us into slavery. God, maybe we just can't trust you. Maybe you're just not good. Maybe God, you're the problem. Right? And when things start to unravel in your life, you, you first get mad at yourself. Oh, why could I be, why am I like this? Why did I let this happen? Oh, if only I had. And then eventually you start to get angry at God. God, how could you let? God, how come you? And God says, hey, you're, you're looking for this certificate of divorce. I didn't give you one. You're looking for this, I've sold you away. No, I haven't. Here's what he says in the middle of verse one. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. You got yourself here. You said, I want to worship like all the other nations. And that's what you did. And so I'm now letting you have what you want. Right? You wanted life without me. You wanted life without home. Knock yourself out. You're here because you chose to get there. We sin by nature and we sin by choice. We make real decisions that have real consequences and they really do lead to us eventually feeling alienated from God. It's interesting because we actually make the sinful choices we make because we think they'll make us feel better. We think they're actually a path toward home. Oh, if I could be in this relationship. Oh, if I could have that. Oh, if I could pursue this career. Oh, if these people esteem me. If, ooh, 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 if, 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 then I'd feel like I'm at home. And you get there and it maybe tastes like it for a little bit, but it isn't long before you go, wait a minute, this is... This is not home either. And God says, hey, the reason you're here is because you sold yourself through your iniquities. But then look at what he says in verse two. Why? 
When I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Uh, in baseball, when I was growing up, we would, uh, guys that like couldn't quite reach the ball, we'd say, oh, it's just because he has T-Rex arms. You know, like, oh, he can't quite, he can't quite catch it. He's got T-Rex arms. And here's what I want to tell you today. God doesn't have T-Rex arms. His hands are big. Look at what he says. Is my hand shortened? that it cannot redeem. No, he's got long arms. He's got big hands. Uh, something happens to me almost every week. And it's one of the few moments in life where I really feel useful and amazing and important. It happens every week. I've got a family of people with small hands. And they will often hand me the jar. Dad, honey, can you open this? <laughs> I sure can. Right? And sometimes I can't always get it, but I go, I'll just hang in there. Right? And, you know, this is what God's saying. Do you think you have locked yourself in this jar that can't be opened? Do you think my hand is not capable of doing this? No. Yes, you're in trouble. Yes, you're in exile. Yes, this is a bad thing. But I haven't forgotten you. I'm not done with you. Listen, listen, look up here, every eyeball. You cannot out -sin God's grace. You can't do it. His arm is not too short to save. His hand is not too small. Yes, you might be in exile. Yes, you might have turned your back. Yes, you might be in this place of confusion. Turn back to the Lord. He'll welcome you. He'll receive you. Look what he says in the next chapter in Isaiah 51 beginning in verse nine, this is describing this arm of the Lord. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? God, wasn't it you who parted the seas and let Israel pass? Yes, it was. Verse 11, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy and where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and shall go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. And the Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. By the way, did I mention my hand is huge, God says. Establishing the heavens, laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. In these moments of exile, you're gonna be tempted to say, God, you've turned your back on me. You don't want me. God, you've forsaken me. It's too late. And God says, no, no, no. No, 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 turn around because my arm's not too short to save and my hand's not too small to save. And if you will come to me, I will gladly welcome you home. Come to me, turn to me. You can't out -sin my grace. You are my people. The second deceit 
it hits us in seasons of exile is this, it will never get better. I'm permanently in the desert. This desert language is familiar to us. It's the language that's used in chapter 51, verse three, where it says, the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. There's this reality when you're in exile that you feel like you're in a wasteland. You feel like you're in a desert. Uh, <laughs> now, here's the fun thing in Arizona. We actually know what this feels like. Like, like you, you know, I mean, like generally you live in the desert, but like you actually go out in the desert desert. And I've been to Israel, and the wilderness of Israel is not very different from the wilderness here. It looks very similar. Right? Oftentimes I, when I drive out and I see the superstition mountains, it looks to me like, you know, Beersheba and these places that you read about, the wilderness. And in the desert, you think, I'll never make it. I'll never get out. There will never be water. It'll never get better. I'm permanently here. I've shared with you before, Henry Cloud has a really helpful uh, diagnosis for when we get into these seasons of desert, when these seasons of exile, these seasons of wilderness. He calls it the three Ps, right? The first P is that you think that everything's personal. Everything's about you and everything's about your failure and everything's about your problem. And, and it's not just that you live in a broken world, but everything is all your fault. So that's the first P is it's personal. The second is that it's pervasive, that this problem is not just in this relationship, but it's actually in all relationships. And this problem is not just in this way of thinking, it's in all the ways you think. And the, the problem is not just this particular issue related to money, it's everything and it's everywhere. And it's in my work and it's in my home and it's pervasive and I'm the worst and despair, 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 desert, desert, wilderness. And the third P is that it's permanent. It's never gonna get better. It's, there's never gonna be hope. It's never gonna turn around. It's never gonna shake loose. And this, this leads us sometimes to very, very destructive behavior where we hurt ourselves. We hurt other people because we're so caught in this cycle of desert, wilderness, waste places, thinking, and it gets dark and it gets deep and it gets heavy and we think, well, nobody would care and nobody misses me and nobody, I don't matter anyway. And I just want to tell you that's such a lie. That's a lie of the enemy. That's a lie of the evil one. The, the, those thoughts that you don't matter, those are the words of him who seeks to steal and kill and destroy you. It's not true. And so you need the declaration of God to come into this and to speak into this. Here's the declaration. Number two is that God can turn wasteland into waterways. This is what he says in verse three. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Think about this. What if the waste places were like a garden? What if the dry desert was like this place of rich flourishing? And over and over in the book of Isaiah, there's this promise that God intends to turn these waste places into waterways, that actually there's going to be a turnaround. Look at what he says in Isaiah 35, verse one. The wilderness, same word, and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Isaiah 41, 18. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land springs of water. Isaiah 43. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. This is a wilderness and it is dark and it is difficult, but God wants to turn something new out of it. And I just love specifically in, in 51 verse three, where it says, the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Uh, recently, I saw somebody post a thing on Twitter. Uh, Twitter's usually a desert wasteland, but not always. Uh, and uh, somebody posted a thing on Twitter and they said, um, describe heaven in one word. And uh, one of the pastors who I know that's in uh, North Phoenix, here's what he wrote back. Describe heaven in one word. How would you describe heaven in one word? What would you say? Here's what he said. Describe heaven in one word. His answer, Eden. Eden. And I was like, yes, that's right. It's Eden, right? Heaven is not this far off, uh, what is this like, you know, chubby babies and clouds and harps. Like that sounds not quite like hell, but on the path there. Listen, the true story of the world is not that God is gonna save us and get us the hell off of here. It's that he's gonna get the hell off of earth by bringing heaven back down and making this world like Eden again. That's the goal, that's the dream, that's the hope. And so listen, that's the promise. God's not finished with us. It's not that it will never get better. Yes, you're in a desert, but here's the awesome part. You are connected, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're looking to God by faith, you are connected to the very one whose specialty is making rivers out of the desert. That's his, that's his best thing. And we look at all the trouble that comes, and we look at the challenges that come, and we go, man, how could anything good come of this? One of my favorite stories related to that is a, a book that I've recommended. I tell people all the time, it's one of my favorite books ever. It's called Safely Home by Randy Alcorn. It's a novel. And for years, I didn't have time to read novels because I had important theology books to read, right? And I read Safely Home, and I grew more spiritually from that than all the theology books I'd read the year before. And uh, without ruining the story, it's about the persecuted church in China. And there was a particular famous incident where uh, a number of people who were gathered illegally as Christians were there for a church service. And they knew they'd been infiltrated by spies. They knew they'd been infiltrated by those who wanted to do harm and who would use their words in order to do them injustice. And so the preacher, knowing that that was the situation, decided to preach a wordless sermon. And what he did was he took a glass and he threw it on the ground. As this picture of how the Chinese Communist Party had thrown the people of God to the ground. But he didn't say anything, he just threw the glass on the ground. And then he angrily started stomping on it and stomping on it and stomping on it and stomping on it. Just like the Chinese Communist Party had stomped on Christians, had stomped on Christians, had stomped on Christians until you know what happened? All this little shards of glass started spreading everywhere. And now the church of Jesus Christ is wildly alive in China. And he didn't say a word. He just sat down and everyone knew what he was saying. Now, why is it possible that, that, that you could be stomped on and still have joy? Because you have a God who turns wasteland into waterway, who turns graves into gardens, who turns mourning into dancing. 
One of the verses that I've been praying over and over and over this year is Psalm 30, verse 11. It says this, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. I don't know if you realize that today, uh, three years ago today was our first online only service. It's been three years of mourning for a lot of us, for a lot of different reasons. And that verse, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth. You've clothed me with gladness. Just like the prodigal came home smelling with the stench of pigs, but his father came and wrapped the royal robe around him. This is what God does with us in our seasons of wilderness. It won't last forever. God specializes in turning wasteland to waterway. All right, here's the third deceit in the exile. So you think I'll never make it. I don't have what it takes. I'll never make it. I don't have what it takes. And uh, I, I want to be just real clear here. The deceit part of this is not that you don't have what it takes. It's that you ever thought you would. <laughs> you don't have what it takes. Uh, true. You, you, why did you think you did? Right? If, if you're on your own, if it's only you, and you have to get yourself out of this mess that you've partly got yourself into and that others have contributed to, if, if you're here and this is your, like, it's all on you, you aren't going to make it, but it's not all on you. Zach Eswine, this quote, I just read this over and over and over. He says this, don't repent because you can't be everywhere at once. Repent because you're trying to be everywhere at once. Don't repent because you don't know everything. Repent because you're trying to know everything. Don't repent because you can't fix every problem. Repent because you're trying to fix every problem. Repent for trying to be God. <laughs> I'll never make it. I don't have what it takes. That's actually true. And so the declaration is that, here, here it is, God gives his servant to speak words of life to weary sinners. Are you weary? Are you beat up? Are you going, I don't know if, how much longer I can go? Okay, great. God has you right where he wants you. Look at what he says in verse four. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain it with a word, him who is weary. It isn't, just notice the language of verse four. This is interesting. The Lord God has given me. So this is not the first time this has happened in this poem where there's someone else speaking, but when they speak, it, they sort of sound like God, but it's, but it's not the Lord God. The Lord God has given me. So there's the Lord God and there's me. Hmm. In verse 10, we're told this is a servant. We've been wondering throughout this book, who is this servant? There's a servant here. There's the Lord, and then there's the Lord's servant. And for a while, it seemed like the Lord's servant was Israel, but now it's seeming more like it's an individual. Who is this servant? Well, this servant is one who sustains with the word, him who is weary. Who does that sound like? Come to me, all you who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle in spirit and lowly in heart. Who's that sound like? And then you keep reading about this servant. Who is this servant? Who could this be? Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Okay, so this servant is someone who's morning by morning listening to the voice of God. Who could that be? 
Verse five, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Okay, so this, person, this, this servant is, is sinless. Can't be Israel anymore. Verse six, I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Hmm. Who could that be? If your neighbor strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. Hmm. Verse seven, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. <laughs> it's wild. He just said, I've been disgraced. I've been spit on. I've been mocked. I've been beaten. But now he says, but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. In other words, all this shame that I feel, all this disgrace that I feel, the servant is saying, something's going to happen that's going to so turn it around that it's just not going to be anything anymore. Verse 8, he who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Who, who is this servant? I mean, goodness gracious. He's standing going, are you going to even, you can't, you can't convict me of sin. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? So this servant should actually be obeyed. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Who could this servant be? Well, we'll learn more next week about this servant but it's not hard to figure out that Jesus, who's a friend of sinners, checks a lot of these boxes. And so if you're weary today, if you're confused and unsettled and beat up, maybe your sins contributed to it, maybe the sin of others has contributed to it, whatever the case may be, you have one in Jesus who will speak to you words of life when you're weary who will be a place of healing and a place of forgiveness and a place of, of rest. Jesus gathered together with those teachers of the law and this woman who was caught in adultery came. Who knows what happened to the husband or the man? Jesus written the, wrote in the dirt. Wouldn't you like to see what he wrote in the dirt? I don't know what he wrote in the dirt, but I know what he said to her. And what he said to them is that he who has no sin cast the first stone. They didn't. And though he could have cast the stone, he didn't. Because he's gentle and he's lowly in heart. This is our God. And until this weary world is renewed, it will never be fully home. So we look to Jesus, the one who frees us from exile and puts home in our hearts and gives us a taste of the kingdom here and now. So that's how we're going to close this sermon together, is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. Is we're going to celebrate this reality that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and he gave up his body, and he gave up his blood, so that we could be brought to the Father and welcomed home.
so that we could trade in our filthy, dirty pig robes and instead get his robes of righteousness and his robes of blessing and his robes of grace. So the communion elements are in the seats there in front of you. If you're in the front row, they're underneath your seat. We'd love you to grab those. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to participate in this. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is just a, this is a physical picture. This is a reenactment of the faith that you have. As you eat the cup or eat the bread and drink from the cup, you are taking the picture of Jesus into you. This is a symbol of, of Jesus' love for you. This is a picture of Jesus' presence here with you by his spirit. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is, a, this is a time to be refreshed from your weariness. This is a time to get a taste of home from the one who made you. If you're not a follower of Christ, man, I'm so glad you're here. Just watch, look in, listen in as we declare that we do not have what it takes, but that Jesus does. Kids, you follow the direction of your parents or your guardians as to whether you should participate in communion. I want to give you just a moment to pray and to pause, to reflect on why the Lord has been good to you, why he's satisfying to you, and then we'll eat and drink together.